Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us today on Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series today, God's Provision. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 37 as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Remaining Faithful and Contented. Perspective. It's an interesting term. Everything they say depends on your perspective. You know, I once heard a humorous story. Two boys were put into a large barn filled with large stinking mounds of manure. When a man came to pick up the boys, one was sitting in a corner sulking because of his fate of having been stuck there. The other was digging through the mounds of manure with a wide grin on his face. When asked what he was doing, he said, with all this manure, there's got to be a horse in here somewhere. I suppose it's all a matter of perspective. Is it about the manure or is it about the horse that left it? And so let me suggest something else that's also about perspective. Imagine two brothers. They're in a business together, but evil men have set upon them and have, through evil and unethical means, managed to steal a great deal of money from their company, leaving them bereft. One of them is angry and says, God, we had committed our business to you. We're going to use this business to help fund Christian ministry, the advancement of the gospel. How could you have allowed these wicked men who care nothing about you or about your truth, men whose only concern is for themselves, how could you have allowed them to do such evil? But his brother has a different perspective. He sees the evil that was done, but his prayer is very different. He prays, oh God, I know that you are just and holy and that you cannot tolerate evil. I also know that you're in control. And I know that you're committed to my long-term good. I'm excited, for you intend something good by allowing such evil to occur. My eyes are on you, for I know that this will work for my long-term good and for the sake of your glory. I'm excited. Now, I know some of us might ponder whether that second prayer is even possible. But David, a man who has more enemies than we can imagine, has counsel for us in Psalm 37. I began our discussion of this psalm yesterday. And because it's a long psalm, 40 verses, I readily acknowledge that I won't be able to cover all of it in two days. But I thought since the psalm contains a series of commands and then a series of descriptions, which are meant to portray the difference between the righteous and the wicked, and then finally, a series of promises that God has made, I thought we could study the psalm in that way. Now, yesterday, I began by examining some of the commands God gives his people when wicked men seem to be getting their own way. Verse 1 commands, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. And verse 8 commands, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. It tends only to evil. But Psalm 37 does more than command us not to react badly. Verse 3 commands, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Verse 4 adds, delight yourself in the Lord. And verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. You see, God commands us not just to refrain from avenging ourselves. He also commands us to keep our eyes on him, wait for him to act, comfort yourself in his greater designs rather than meditating on the evil that was done to you. Meditate on the beauty of the Lord and let your heart be flooded with his beauty. Find delight in him and let your soul be at peace. Those are the commands of Psalm 37. But in all of these commands, there's a question. How is it possible to do these things? As wonderfully idealistic as all of this sounds, 
Is it really possible to keep these commands? And the answer depends on your perspective. But here I fear you might misunderstand. You and I are both aware that some people are naive. Because they don't understand the concept of evil, they tend to discount it. You know, perhaps that person hurt you because he or she was hurting himself or had a difficult childhood or didn't understand what they were doing. And so as we examine Psalm 37, let's allow David, a man who has had his fair share of enemies who sought to do him harm, describe a contrast between two kinds of people, the wicked and the righteous. Let's get back to the beginning of the psalm. Verse 1 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Now, notice those two words, evildoers and wrongdoers. The fact is that we live in a world that is filled with evildoers. Remember that Jesus often spoke of them. He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers, not people who just saw things differently than he did. In Matthew 13, he told a parable of an enemy who came and sowed weeds among the wheat. He called the weeds the servants of the evil one. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone with whom we have a conflict is an evildoer. But if we pay attention to Psalm 37, we can see exactly what kind of people that David is referring to. Verse 14 says, The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is upright. That is, David describes evil people as aggressive people who attack others. They're known for having brought harm to many people. Now go to verse 21. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. In contrast, the righteous is generous and gives. Notice the difference. Wicked people take an advantage of others for the sake of their own gain, either to get power or to get riches. Righteous people act and live in order to bless others. Look again at verse 32. The wicked watches for the righteous to put him to death. Again, we see a description of the wicked. They take initiative when they cause harm to others. If you want to know what a wicked man or wicked woman looks like, you're going to find them. There are a trail of bodies behind them. And what I mean is there are a trail of people who have been hurt or injured or ruined or slandered or made fun of in some fashion they have been harmed. Wicked people don't harm when they're simply reacting to someone. No, no. They take initiative. They are the first actors in bringing harm. And notice the contrast of the righteous. Verse 23 says that the steps of a man are established by the Lord. And that means the decisions he makes are governed by God's commands. Verse 26 says he is ever lending generously. That is, he uses his resources for the good of others. Verse 30 says that his mouth utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. Verse 31 says the law of his God is in his heart. And whereas in verse 35 it says that the wicked is a ruthless man in that he shows no pity for those whom he harms, verse 37 says that the blameless man is a man of peace. He seeks to reconcile, whereas the wicked man seeks to win. That's the contrast. And indeed, there are wicked men. Now, here I don't just mean sinners because all men and women are sinners. By speaking about the wicked, David is describing a level of sin that is in league with the evil one. And here's what we learn from Psalm 37. Wicked people sometimes prosper, and that should be obvious. I mean, look again at verse 7. And then we read, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. 
Yeah, because the wicked are aggressive to get their own way, and they leave bodies in their wake, and because of that, they often do well financially, for they win over others by destroying them, by ruining them. And in verse 16, David says it again when he notices the abundance of many wicked. Notice verse 21, first part of it. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. That is, he doesn't pay his bills if he can get away with it. And so you can see we're getting a pattern. The wicked has become wealthy by cheating and by robbing others. He's out for himself. Psalm 73, verses 4 to 9, Asaph describes him in this way. He says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. I mean, that's an amazing description, but there is more. According to David, and you'll see this in verse 12 and in verse 14, and finally also in verse 32, the wicked stand poised to persecute others, and they even destroy the righteous. Now, notice the contrast. Although, says David, the righteous sometimes suffer, if you have eyes to see it, they really do, he says, live well. Look at verse 16. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. The righteous may have little, but what they do have is far better cumulatively than what the wicked have. Why? Well, part of the answer lies in verse 26. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. He is the source of goodness to the lives of many. Righteous people never wait until they're wealthy before they begin giving. They do so right now. They give because God has given to them. They give because they want to bless God, but they also want to bless others. Our second edition of Dr. John Neufeld's booklet, What is the Gospel?, has just arrived and is ready to go. This booklet provides the essentials of the gospel, God's provision, the price that was paid, and our hope for eternity. This is a wonderful tool for the follower of Jesus who needs to be assured, or for the one searching to discover what a relationship with Jesus really means. Right now, we want to offer What is the Gospel as our free gift to anyone who's never contacted us before. If this is your first time contacting us, we'd be blessed to send you Dr. John's booklet, What is the Gospel, as our gift to you. We believe it will encourage, inform, and transform your understanding and relationship to Jesus. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 to receive your free copy of What is the Gospel? A life of giving is also a life of wisdom. Verses 30 and 31 says, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The righteous don't use their words to slander others. They use their words to speak the wisdom of God. Verse 37 says, Mark the blameless and uphold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. 
Now, please notice the picture. The righteous may be lacking in many things, but not in generosity, not in wisdom, not in justice to the downtrodden, and not in integrity, assurance, or in inner peace. And in that, we have to consider what the good life really looks like. You know, I remember years ago hearing an interview done with Liberace, and some of you may remember him. He was a pianist, and he was well known for his flamboyance, his completely over-the-top, lavish display of wealth. On stage, his set designs and his clothes were hard to believe. His home was a virtual palace, and throughout his life, he denied himself of almost nothing. I remember an interview that was done with him, and he had lost his health by this time, and the days of his suffering were at hand. And he said, I would gladly give up all of this if only I could gain my health back. But of course, even if some will argue that money can buy happiness, well, it can't buy you health and wisdom and a good name and integrity in your heart. This is the point. The good life consists in what is within. It consists in generosity, wisdom, and justice, and love, in peace, and in the joy of knowing the Creator. The days may come when everything is taken from us, but if you make those your commodities, you're lacking nothing. God has provided for you. And folks, that's the contrast. We should remember that whatever situation we may face, it's a temporary one. Verse 2 says, For they, that is the evildoers, will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. See, I know it may seem that a lifetime is a long time, but in the face of eternity, all our years are like grass. You know, in David's day, living in the Near East, the spring grass was so luscious, but as summer came, it withered almost overnight. If the day when the wicked flourish is short, How long do you think your troubles will be if you're a righteous man or woman? They will also be short. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, For our momentary light affliction. Think of those words. See, the great temptation for all of us is that we trade in today for tomorrow. But we don't have to. If you think the most important things for today are not how much money is in your account or even how good your health is, but that the good life consists in generosity and wisdom in bringing blessings to the oppressed and the skill of living well in the presence of God, the joy of humility, then you may suffer the loss of everything today. You might even be persecuted, but you're still living well. Now, in our study of Psalm 37, we've looked first at the commands. Don't fret when evil people are in ascendancy. Instead, find delight in God. And then the descriptions, the difference between the righteous and the wicked. We come now to the promises. To the wicked, God promises two things. You are here for only a short time, and second, justice is coming. Look at verse 9. For the evildoer will be cut off. Or verse 20. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. In fact, look at verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. In fact, there's a looming crisis. Today is so quickly behind us. You know, I find it interesting how many people fear time. I mean, every birthday is a threat, every wrinkle, every gray hair, every ache and pain, every doctor's report. Reminds them how relentlessly the day is coming when they will not be here. They fear time. And to be truthful, they should fear time because the day of justice really is coming. Look at verse 14. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy. And then on to verse 15. 
Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. You see, God has planned a day when the wicked will be no more. He's planned a day of justice when justice is done, and it will look like justice. In fact, it is God's promise to all those who will not come trembling before him. Verse 38 promises, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. And at some future day, and God has written that day into his daytimer, all the wicked will lose hope. I remember the first time I read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I was overwhelmed at his description of the terrors of hell, of the day when someone enters hell itself, how the heart must sink as one sees an endless duration of hopelessness and despair, an inability to die, an inability to escape, and an absolute fierce resolution and determination by God to never grant absolution from their sins, that's altogether horrifying. Why should I envy the wicked? But then God makes promises to the righteous. There's so many promises in this psalm that absolutely astound and delight me. But for me, four of them stand out. First is found in verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know, there was a time in my life when I put so many qualifications around that promise. For me, it had to exclude my desire for a mansion, a a four-car garage, and the finest of cars and bikes, and a a perfect ten body, and the fame and adulation of the crowds. I mean, I always felt that I had to warn the righteous that that was not what was intended. After all, doesn't Jeremiah 17 verse 9 warn us that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful? See, I was afraid that this promise would lead people to desire wicked and deceitful things. But in more recent years, I've stopped putting any qualification around this promise at all. It means what it says straight up. It's full, rich, and unqualified in all that it offers. It's staggering in its immensity. But, and this is the key, all we have to do is ask ourselves to whom this promise is made. This promise is not given to the wicked, but to the righteous. It's given to those who delight themselves in the Lord. That is, for those to whom God is their highest delight who have no greater aspiration than to find their moment-by-moment pleasure in Him. This is offered. If, however, our delight is not in God, no such promise is made. That's simple. Now a second promise, this one found in verse 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. See, this second promise tells me that all my faithfulness to God will never be forgotten. You know, for years I worked with a very faithful pastor who had an expression. I'll never forget it. He used to say, God knows. I heard him say that once, and I bet I heard him say it a hundred times. He said it when the unrighteous seemed to win. He said it when no one noticed what he or someone he loved was suffering. He said it when something he or others had done went unnoticed. He kept saying it because in the end, I guess, I understood that he believed it. And David believed it too. God will in the end let my righteousness shine forth. A third promise, verse 9 says, For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. The fact that believers inherit the land is repeated three times in this psalm. We saw it in verse 9, then it's found again in verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And then once more in verse 22, For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. In fact, Jesus thought, This is so important that he repeated it in Matthew 5 when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
And when you think about it, it's the most unlikely of all scenarios. I remember reading a bit of graffiti scribbled into a bathroom, and it said, We meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay, with the rest of you guys. (laughs) I looked at that and I laughed. The meek never inherit anything, at least so the wicked think. Indeed, they get rolled over. But God says not so. The meek, the ones who do right, get it all. God will see to it. It's his promise. And then the fourth promise. God will never abandon you. Look at verses 39 to 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. So from these promises in Psalm 37, I can perhaps categorize them into three categories. God promises you, you're going to be remembered. You will not be disgraced. And in the end, you will have it all. You know, the story is told of Philip Melanchthon and Martin Luther one day deciding what to do that day. And Melanchthon said, Martin, this day you and I will discuss the governance of the universe. To which Luther responded, Philip, this day you and I will go fishing and leave the governance of the universe to God. Indeed, we shall do exactly that. We will continue to put our hope in the Lord and continue to obey his promises and leave the future into his capable hands. All will be well. I have no wants. John, thanks so much for your message and for the series. It's been a great series. But one last question, I guess, is, you know, do we really struggle with the promises of God? I think we embrace those. But do we more struggle with the timing of God's response to those promises? Yeah, that the timing seems so long. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think it's true, and, and it does try all of us, because in the end, I think faith is believing in the future promises of God that up till now we have not yet seen. Now, you know, there are some people that are saying, yet, yeah, but how will I know that they will end up like that? And I, I think the answer has to be in the resurrection of Christ. Christ was raised from the dead as God had promised, and because of Christ's resurrection, all of the other promises of God are sure and amen. What we're going to have to content ourselves with is seeing the long game, even as God does. Ben, I think the issue before us will always be this. In the present day of evil, can I find contentment in the fact that the day will come? It's not here today, but the day will come in the future, and I have to keep my eyes on that promise. And that's a great promise. Thanks so much, and join us again next time for Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Logan wrote to say, The greatest impact remained for the lowest point in my life. When my wife was hospitalized and eventually passed, God used Back to the Bible Canada to help me find new meaning and purpose for my life, also prompting me to give back and to get involved. Well, you know, the purpose of a Bible teaching ministry is to engage, instruct, and apply the Bible in a way that transforms lives. The impact is real, and the evidence is found in the lives and testimonies of people that we hear from every day, people like Logan. Well, your gifts to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada make Logan's story possible. Did you know that the annual cost of just airing our ministry programs on radio is upwards of $1 million? Your gifts are essential in making these programs available every day. Stand with us in our ongoing efforts to make Bible teaching available across Canada. Call 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca to offer your gift today.